Welcome to episode 12, or the second half of the de-extinction episodes. Again, we did a really, really long one because it was such a fascinating topic, such a detailed topic. And last episode, you got to hear me talking a lot about prehistoric animals. This episode is all about Becca and modern de-extinction. So without further ado, let's get on with the episode. Welcome to the podcast, where we clear up common misconceptions in biology and evolution. And learn that all the answers to evolution's mysteries are simple in the way that everything is astoundingly complicated. Welcome to Darwin's Black Book. modern day extinction and kind of the conservation um, applications of this so Tom kind of went into this with the woolly mammoth about why it might be good from a, a conservation and sustainability point of view but the mammoth did go extinct a very long time ago so while I was looking into this I came across a paper by Sabalos, Ehrlich and Raven which was published in 2020 last year in um, PNAS and Basically, it was talking about the sixth mass extinction. You know what this is, don't you, Tom? Harking back to last episode, this was starting where your fingernail started to grow this morning. Yeah, if you didn't listen to the episode, that's going to sound really weird. Yep, but... go and listen to the last episode. <laughs> so the sixth mass extinction um, is right now. And the, this paper, they said the ongoing sixth mass extinction may be the most serious environmental threat to the persistence of civilization because it is irreversible. So this mass extinction is caused by the still fast growing numbers of humans and especially consumption rates and the type of things we are consuming. Thousands of populations of animals and all sorts of different organisms are critically endangered, including vertebrates, so everything with a backbone which seems to be the stuff people care most about. Um, so many of them have been lost in a century, indicating that the sixth mass extinction is human-caused and it is still accelerating. So recently, the World Wildlife Fund, also known as the WWF, have stated that animal populations have declined by an average of almost 70% in the last 50 years. 50 years wasn't Since isn't that much time. Yeah, 1970, it's in our parents' lifetimes. That is... Not That's that bad. Long. That's bad. But it's not like if one thing goes extinct or gets threatened that that's the only thing it affects. So we talked about kind of networks and ecosystems before, um, but species are all part of these ecosystems. And if they fall out of them by going extinct, the species they all interact with are likely to struggle as well. Even one going extinct can massively affect an ecosystem if you start taking chunks out left, right and centre, or because climate changing, other species start moving into new areas, into new ecosystems. It can have an absolutely devastating effect on an environment. Yeah. And we've seen this in areas of the world where the number of disappearing species is quite high. Whole regional biodiversity areas are just completely collapsing. Um, so let's really quickly, you're probably wondering why I'm telling you about this, but it's going to come back around to the extinction in a moment, I promise. Um, so let's quickly think about some direct connections. So there are countless examples, but here are some. Say a pollinator of a plant goes extinct. So the plant will also go extinct. So the parasite of the plant and the pollinators, all of those will go extinct. And the specialist predator of the pollinator will also go extinct. 
etc etc on we go and it gets bigger and bigger and this is an ecological cascade one single change or a few single changes can have an absolutely huge effect over a very very large area another example really quickly becca is um in yellowstone national park where wolves were hunted to extinction in the park this had an unexpected effect because then rivers started changing and the salmon populations started decreasing which is really really weird what happened the wolves tended to hunt the deer now there were no wolves the deer stayed in locations for longer along the riverbanks they ate more plants on the riverbanks including saplings therefore the beavers couldn't have didn't have any trees to make dams therefore the water was the wrong speed for the salmon to spawn in and the population of the salmon plummeted all because wolves were made extinct in the area that's an ecological that's the ecological cascade but anyway, this this paper basically looked at um, what they called species on the brink. So species that are very soon to be extinct, probably. Um, and they found a lot of vertebrates, so a lot of macroorganisms, a lot of things that we tend to really care about. Um, but about 543 species of vertebrates are known to have disappeared since 1900. That's a huge amount of species. Whoa. That is a vast amount. And some people say, well, couldn't this have all just happened without humans anyway? No. The background extinction rate for the last 2 million years has been about 9 extinctions in 150 years, if you look at comparatively. But right now, the rate of extinction is 117 times higher than that of the background extinction. It is because of humans unequivocally. Yeah, that does suggest that it's not by chance. Mm -hmm. animals are struggling to cope in a rapidly changing world it's just changing too quickly yeah climate change human actions and an article from the metro stated it really nicely a loss of habitat and other factors have combined to leave many animals facing a bleak future and some facing none at all oh great but why am i telling you all of this what's this got to do with the extinction please do tell me this news (laughs) the question is Humans are clearly responsible for a lot of animal species going extinct. But if the animal's niche is still available in the wild, are we therefore responsible for doing anything we can to get them back? To protect their ecosystem and because it was our fault in the first place? What if they are integral to the ecosystem? What if they're a keystone species? Is it our job to bring them back? Um, so that's, that's up to you to decide. Not you, Tom, all the listeners. No, I'm, I'm okay to decide. I'm okay. Yes, yes, it is our place. We made, did the boo-boo in the first place. Let's fix it. That's, it's simple as. And that's the opinion of many people. And that's why the extinction research is actually happening for reals. So an attempt that has actually already been made. So these are animals that have gone extinct relatively recently. Their niches are still exist in the wild and they've gone extinct because of humans. So some would say they've, it's gone extinct unnaturally. We've got to bring them back in any way we can. Um, so in the year 2000, the last Pyrenean ibex died. But just before she died, scientists took a tissue sample from her ear because they kind of knew what was going to happen. They were going to go extinct. And technology was getting to the place where they're like, well, maybe hopefully in the near future, we can do something with this tissue sample um, and see what happens. And then, and this female was called Celia. Nice Um, nice name. (laughs) And in 2003, scientists did use a tissue sample in an attempt to clone Celia to resurrect the extinct species of Ibex. That seems like a 
very good idea and it seems what could possibly go wrong. Yeah, because this animal only went extinct kind of three years ago. It's niche, niche is still there. It's still very much there. It, it's, there is a gap and the, the ecosystem is probably struggling in some form. A plant would have gone wild, out of completely out of control, for example. Exactly, and that was kind of the purpose of this. So they used... Um, so they used 208 pregnant goats using the methods that we described Whoa. in the last episode. Um, just one of these was successful. One Oof. developed out of 208. So this is not an easy thing to do. Also, almost a 0.5% success rate. Not only that, but this baby Ibex was born with a lung defect. Um, it only lived for seven minutes before it suffocated, essentially. So all that yeah. stopped because this is this is really difficult, a really difficult thing to do. And I think it illustrates when I was chatting about the mammoth, trying to bring back a mammoth by putting it into a mammoth egg into an elephant. This is the issue. It would, you can't even do the same species or such closely yeah. related species, let alone something that's thousands of years apart. But in 2013, it was announced that in the future, this would be tried again with the Pyrene Ibex. Main issue, though, um, because the sample was taken from Celia, who is a female, only females can be produced, so she ah. will have no males to mate with. Um, again, like was mentioned with the elephant and the mammoth situation, they could mate with a closely related species of ibex, which still exist, um, and they'll be much more closely related the, than the elephants and the mammoths were. Um, so they could create hybrids and then continue this via artificial selection, so deciding which individuals are going to breed. Um, until you're... This subspecies is far more related to the Pyrenean ibex, therefore let them only mate with this specific subspecies, etc, exactly. etc. Et et yeah. And just keep going until you've almost got a pure Pyrenean ibex again. It will always have a little bit of the other ibex in it, so it won't be completely pure, but it will be close, and it might be enough to fit back into that niche in that ecosystem. Also, who's to say that they weren't breeding anyway, before they went extinct? So essentially what you're saying, Becca, is let them live in an environment long enough and hopefully nature can kind of fill the rest of the framework that we've provided is that kind of the, so yeah we built this framework almost to Pyrenean ibex adaptations over several generations back in their niche they should fill it again hopefully so yeah it's it's almost like a, a backup let's try not to make them extinct first because it's still not a Pyrenean ibex it's still it's still not really a it's, it, it's almost yeah yeah um so this was the last um time it was stated this was going to be attempted again like i said was 2013. the year after that um it was decided there should probably be some rules in place some more rules Maybe. specifically for the extinctions <laughs> as normal the um the law and the guidelines were catching up with the science without laws like that you're going to get someone in florida just creating a lot of dodos florida i just man. get the vibe that that's good florida, florida man, man accidentally, <laughs> accidentally clones 50 dodos i don't know i i get the vibe that that might happen um, yeah so in 2014 the iucn in switzerland so you might have heard of the iucn they're responsible for the red list um they determine which animals are vulnerable um nearly extinct or they're safe that kind of thing um and they created what they called a de-extinction task force in april 2014 um, and this group basically drafted a set of guidelines for extinct species for conservation benefit to position the iucn 
on where they stand in terms of this rapidly emerging technological feasibility of creating a, they call it a proxy of an extinct species. They're kind of like the best we can do to replace them. It sounds, it sounds all good. So what, based based on these things, so now we've got the IUCN, know where they stand. Um, we've got the technology is, is emerging, is getting there. What upcoming de-extinctions could we actually be seeing within the next decade? So this is up to 2030, you know, in the very near future, what could we bring back? Um, So one of them is the passenger pigeon. Oh, I love the passenger pigeon. (laughs) Of course, you love pigeons. Yeah, I love pigeons. pigeon. So the passenger pigeon numbered in the billions before being wiped out due to commercial hunting and habitat loss. In the late 1800s, there was a report uh, far out in America where they lived there was a report of one of the flocks flying overhead. It took three days. What? And now they're extinct. And now they're gone. It, the issue is, people were hunting them, they thought, there are so, so many of them. Surely, whatever we do to these huge flocks, they won't go extinct. So they went at them with... Uh, I bet there was another report of people just firing shotguns randomly into their air and you'd get dinner for the next 10 days. Uh, but there was one example where they get Gatling guns, put them on roofs, big machine guns, and just open fire for hours at a time. And then this happened. And then this happened. I mean, are we surprised? Mm. But anyway, the um, the de-extinct passenger pigeon hybrid is expected to be ready for captive breeding by 2024. That's three years from now. That's incredible. That's exciting. And they think... That's really cool. They will have it ready to be released back into the wild by 2030. That would be true de-extinction. And I think that would be fantastic. <laughs> Next up, thylacine. So we've already done an episode on Tasmanian tigers, so we're not going to go into huge amounts of detail on why they went extinct. You can go back and listen to that one. We have the genome. It was published in 2017. The next step towards the de-extinction of the thylacine will to be create a functional genome. So rather than just kind of like what what we know is there, what the code is, how does it work? Or the specific, okay, okay, yeah. And this will require extensive research and development. But they estimate that a full attempt to resurrect the species could start in 2027. Six years from That's now. soon. That's soon. They could be soon. starting to do that. Give them money. Give them money and funding. Let's do this. <laughs> Next up, we've got the Carolina parakeet, a bird, another bird. This used to be the only parrot species that was native to the United States. They were driven to extinction after being hunted for feathers because they were super fashionable to have in the hats for all the grand ladies. Um, the last one died in 1918 because of this. So kind of at the end of the First World War. But because they were really beautiful, very colourful, um, people loved having taxidermy versions of them and mounting them. Um, the feathers were very beautiful. Um, eggshells were remain in circulation museums, so there was a lot of DNA around. So DNA extraction and cloning of the species could soon become a possibility. So Virginia Tech in the US has a project underway to implant a Carolina parakeet genome into the egg of a relative, the Jandaya parakeet, which is quite closely related. And there is enough suitable climate for this bird to inhabit. They already know that. However, that raises the risk that the bird could become an invasive species. But is it invasive? Because it's already from there. 
But whatever you argue, whether it's invasive or not, it might act like an invasive species because although this was only in 1918, the ecosystem probably has moved on somewhat since that time. Something has filled the niche already. Even, that's the thing, that if it's two or three years, it's okay, a mm. hundred years. Scientifically, it's possible, but the ecosystem has tried to patch up the mistake. And if you try and fix it again, are you making things is it, worse? Is that niche still available? I, I don't know. Um, mm. That's what this team are doing. But they're trying to do it. Cross fingers. Cross fingers to repairing broken ecosystems. Yeah, so we might, we might see the Carolina parakeet coming back. So next is the Baji River dolphin. They were declared functionally extinct in 2006. Oh, it's so... Oh, yeah. So that means there weren't enough individuals around to sustain a population. They were kind of done for, basically. Um, it became the first cetacean to go extinct in modern times due to human influence. So 2006 wasn't that long ago compared to some of these others. It really wasn't. Um, and because of its recent extinction, DNA can be very easily extracted from remains. It's still... The DNA hasn't degraded because it was only 2006. But would this river dolphin be able to go home after being resurrected? So the river's still there, the niche is still available, but the Yangtze River system, where it lived, the dolphin's natural habitat, it remains heavily polluted. So this is the same, one of the same things that made it go extinct in the first place. That problem has not been fixed. You would put it back and then it would die. Yeah, it would go extinct again. Um, but also, there's not enough governmental support or money to correct these issues that led to the extinction in the first place. So it's still polluted and no one's doing anything about it. Um, mm. But I have to say, this isn't due to the people that live around the Yangtze River. It's industrial pollution created during the manufacture of many products shipped to the West. Um, also, rubbish, like plastic rubbish. Um, they've done... China's working on this now by rejecting plastic waste from um, the West. Um, but this river still isn't clean enough. This sounds a, a little bit too little, a little bit too late. Mm. And this includes things like household goods, electronic parts, materials and fashion items driving the pollution in the river. So even if we did technologically work out how to bring back the Baji River Dolphin, it would just be going back into just a really horrible river that made it go extinct in the first place. Yeah. It makes me um, think with the cetaceans, the next one to go extinct looks like the Vaquita from the Mexican Gulf. It's still there, but I believe okay. there's 30-ish individuals left. Oh. It's very, very small, about only a metre-ish long. So very small, very sweet dolphin. Um, if we can by any chance bump up the populations like this, I think it would be... Yeah, before they go extinct in the again, first place. Similar situation, though, the Mexican Gulf, it, it's suffering because it's really, really sensitive to pollution and water quality. So same, mm. same issue. So, yeah, what would be the point of bringing it back if it's just going to die again? For the same reason. Yeah. Because we haven't fixed it. Right, okay. <laughs> so next up we have another bird called the huia. They're a bit bigger than a kind of a crow, about that sort of size, and they've got yellow cheeks and a big kind of hooked, thin beak. They're really, really pretty. Um, and they lived on a North Island of New Zealand. They became extinct in the early 20th century after museum demand for mounted specimens because they were really interesting. Oh, flip an egg. Look at this wonderful specimen. Oh, uh, yeah. I bet it's dead. Yeah. So it says they went extinct in the early 20th century, but there might have been sightings later on, but not more recent than kind of 50-ish years ago. Definitely not. Um, 
But this bird in New Zealand today is very popular as a mascot and it's a national symbol. So a project was launched in 1999 to clone and resurrect the huia. And the mapping of the genome has been successful. Oh, so we've okay, got that. Okay, good. Okay. Some good news. However, the island the huia lived on, South Island Kokeko, the species that is most closely related to the huia that they were going to use might actually already be extinct as well. Oh. Um, other closely related species on this island um, are currently <laughs> listed as threatened and also face eradication due to introduced invasive species. Um, so what you've so done there, you've provided a, a good answer to me and then you, you, you just shoot it down. Um, well, that's what um, people have done, unfortunately. Uh, um, so efforts to bring back the huia may just end up using money and resources that could go to preserving these closely related species that are probably going to go extinct soon too. That's a really interesting point. Um, and if these animals are going extinct, who's to say we bring back the huia and that doesn't also go extinct and then they all go extinct? Shouldn't we be directing our resources into preserving what's already endangered? Yeah, that's a really good point. It's a conundrum. Um, so moving away from birds, this last one is a thinker. As promised, I said I was going to talk about Neanderthals. Oh, gosh. So you've had some time to think about this. Um, yeah. So what Neanderthals are, if you don't know, they're a species of human that died out 40,000 years ago. Our very own species, Homo sapiens, lived alongside them for many years before they went extinct. We actually have some of their genetic material in our DNA. They are also part of our same genus. They are Homo neanderthalensis. So we're really closely related. Quite closely related, yeah. But that means, for that very reason you just said, Tom, the surrogate species would be us, would be Homo sapiens. Oh boy. Well, not like us two, but like members of yeah, Homo no, sapiens. Yeah, no, I'm not ready to give birth to a neanderthal baby. I am... Well, I'm um, not mentally ready for that. That's a, okay. Uh, we do have a rough draft of the genome. So the question is no longer, could we do this, but should we do this? Uh, um, the ethical considerations seem to outweigh the technical case. And the UN have already banned many countries with performing this technology, anything to do with cloning of humans. Uh, also, can I just say... Yeah. My God, we struggle enough with Homo sapiens of different ethnicities, let alone a whole other species of human. Like, what? How's that going to go societally? We can't even cope as it is. Everyone's hating on each other and being awful. I have a hand up for this one. I think I know the answer. Badly, it'll mm. go badly. <laughs> um, and it's also been argued by some that um, have you heard of hybrid vigor? I think so. Yeah, it's where you have, it's a case where you have two parents of either subspecies or closely related species that produce offspring that's actually better adapted to the environment than both parents. And some people are like, if there's hybrid vigour from these half Neanderthal, half Homo sapien offspring, um, what's that going to do? They're going to be, are they going to be superhumans? See, people are already being kind of How can we make a... dodgy towards them. Yeah, don't even exist. yeah, that's really, really interesting. Also, it kind of goes back to the same thing. There's no other members of their species alive. So they would know they're the only member of their species. Or would they know? We don't know. If we told them. If we, uh, we could tell them. Could they understand we could it? Tell them. What would the language yeah. barrier be? Could they even... Oh, so many questions. Yeah. Language, Would they cognition. have like, the brain capacity to be able to have like language? Like, there's arguments against and for that yeah. in um, anthropology research. Neanderthals had larger brains so, than modern day humans. So. Yeah, but they weren't... They didn't 
yeah, th- they weren't cognitively advanced <laughs> as us. So th- there are so many Bigger issues brain that cost yeah, more. Yeah, yeah, there are so many issues. And again, what would you feed them? Or uh, or what would you? Oh, where would they where go? Would they go? Um, also, they couldn't live in a lab their entire the... lives, but you can't shove them in a jungle either. Um, also, what I told you about the perennial ibex. Remember 208 goats and one went right and then died after seven minutes? It's incompatible with life. If if we're successful with this, there's no way to know whether the child would be okay. Um, Again, would it have the immunity to modern bacteria and viruses? Like we mentioned with the mammoth. If it went through a surrogate mum, hopefully. Somewhat, yeah. But also, that raises a really good point. How many... We talked about last time about elephant trauma giving birth to a mammoth and having to look after... Mm. something of a different species how yeah surrogate mum how many mums would that take how many yeah, mums it could, is too many mums hundreds of mothers could lose babies these half neanderthal babies oh boy is that it is even a... what, why why do we want it why <laughs> to see if we can i think that looks like that lab might get a very large check for a few hundred therapy sessions yeah there isn't um i couldn't find evidence of someone actually trying to do this because it is actually illegal in so many countries for good reason i um, think good yes that is we'll, yeah. yeah that could be something in the future so, something people are talking about anyway maybe leave it as a hypothetical talking point as opposed to an actual practical aspect of yeah. biology that should be performed so You've told some really interesting conservation stories, which I think have both hope and some really intricate ethical questions. Mm. The money spent doing this, could it be better spent saving species are already really in trouble and conservation like that? And where would they go? And uh, even, yeah, as you say, 100 years is too long to put an animal back into its old ecosystem again. It, it, it's a fascinating it's a fascinating thing. Do you think this has any viability? Any of these plans have any viability at all? We should be doing this or...? Quite possibly. I mean, the Carolina parakeet, that seems pretty solid to me. Um, I mean, I'm sure they'll figure it out if that niche isn't available, but that is the one that did die out in 1918. I'd quite like to see the passenger pigeons come back. Yeah, I, yeah, that could be a good, a good shout, to be honest. They are, because they fulfil parts of an ecosystem which uh, they eat a lot of things and they also... <laughs> Um, are eaten by many things and therefore there's a lot of connections so if they disappear those connections are also collected again to many other connections so they don't have a massive impact if they come back they might not have a massive impact they might just be resuming their old place but then yeah money and is it a good idea and oh yeah, and if if we can clean up the um yangtze river then no. maybe i would say <laughs> the budgie river dolphin uh, but it doesn't look like that's no. Same with the Fakita, that the amount of pressure conservation groups like Sea Shepherd, Greenpeace are putting on the the governments of the area to try and clean up that section of of Gulf, but it doesn't look good. Mm. So there are some really interesting bits, food for thought, I I guess. And yeah, as a listener, where do you stand on this? If if you have any points, you can reach us at at Twitter as well. And and you you can have a chat because it's a really interesting discussion, I think, to have. So going back right to the beginning of last episode, we mentioned how someone would really like to see the Megalodon back. And I mentioned how I have some opinions on this and really quickly, why this is an absolutely shocking idea. So (laughs) the Megalodon went extinct naturally and they went extinct because they ran out of food. 
Specifically, they ate whales. The blue whale is the size that it is, the largest animal to have ever existed on planet Earth because it had no defence against the megalodon, so it just grew big. <laughs> and then megalodon couldn't get it. The tooth whales that actually were able to defend themselves against megalodon are no longer around and they're smaller, like the orca. Its, it's relatives were much, much smaller. Bearing in mind, megalodon was in existence from about 23 to 3.6 million years ago. And whales were evolving and developing and they have changed since then. Again, the tooth whales are much smaller than they used to be that could defend themselves. Also, our oceans are super messed up already without introducing one of the largest predators to have ever existed in the sea. What do you mean by super Again, messed up? As in human impact? Fish stocks are rapidly decreasing. Mm. The temperature is changing. Ecosystems are failing purely because of changing water temperatures, salinity, pH levels, and mm. also and underwater mining, which is just a terrible idea, and fracking. And we can't introduce one of the largest sharks ever <laughs> again. That's my opinions on the matter. <laughs> so I hope that you've all heard enough about this kind of thing to figure out if someone says to you they want to bring back, say, any animal, say the, the T-Rex, you'll be able to say whether that's a good idea or not. No. <laughs> or something more modern. Um, there's an, a final example I wanted to bring up before we get to animal of the episode. It's called the moa bird. They went extinct 600 plus years ago, but they were hunted to extinction. Um, they're very similar to ostriches and emus. Where did they live exactly? In New Zealand again. They were once the, the world's largest birds, but they were hunted to extinction. Um, but their feathers and eggs are still found relatively intact. So we have that genetic material and DNA from ancient eggshells has mapped the genome. Again, same more question, where would it yeah, go? Yeah. Would it occupy the same niches where the ostriches and emus are? Would it go back to New Zealand? But it was our fault. But yeah. it was 600 years ago. And that's the thing, though, because New Zealand has also changed an absolutely huge amount in 600 years, and that niche is almost certainly, definitely, 100% gone. So consider this. My real conclusions here. My, my take-home messages for you all. Focusing on the extinction could compromise biodiversity by diverting resources from preserving the ecosystems and preventing newer extinctions. So what we said earlier, you could put all this, this money and things into bringing something back when we could put it into stopping things from going extinct in the first place, which is happening at an increasing rate. Also the research time and the effort needed. There's a lot of people power needed for this. Also being able to de-extinct things very easily could reduce the moral weight of extinction and support for endangered species might go down. It might give the false impression that reviving an extinct animal or plant is just something anyone can do whatever. It doesn't matter if they go extinct, we can just bring them back. That is something I had not previously thought about and is a very mm. good point. That is a very human trait that I see evolving yeah. if that, uh, yeah. Taking it for granted almost immediately. Um, no, so my overall message here is de-extinction is technologically hard. It's ethically complex and practically very, very difficult. So let's just not let things go extinct anymore. It's easier and nicer. Can, can we all agree on that? I think that's the understatement, easier and nicer. Uh, just the biggest numbers. Yeah, no, but I completely agree with you. It, it's let's prevent it going from extinct in the first place rather than having to try and fix and bandage up a broken ecosystem and trying to force in an animal that went extinct decades ago. In which case, Becca, what's it time for? Animal of the episode. 
So amazing. Right. Yeah. So far, I've won three. We've drawn three and Tom has won four. So Tom's winning. I pulled forwards. I pulled forwards. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to quickly go through the results of last time, which is um, episode 10 on Maria Sibula Marion, who was the world's first um, entomologist and an explorer and all sorts of wonderful other things. So um, we looked at two of the species that she drew the cycles of. Um, I chose a praying mantis species and Tom chose the Conchulura fly. And the votes were put on Twitter and Facebook. And the praying mantis won with 83%. I'm not surprised. I took a massive risk. (laughs) Your fly was cool, but very grim. (laughs) It was really gross. That's actually, interesting. I think, one of the most weighted votes I I think think we've had. I think that's my biggest win so far, yeah. Well deserved. (laughs) Anyway, this time... um, I have chosen something that people have talked about being de-extinct for all the reasons that I'm sure you've heard throughout these episodes. You probably know that it shouldn't be de-extinct, but it's a really cool animal. It's the giant ground sloth. Now, actually three genera, so it's not one species. It's not even one genus. I'm looking at three genera here. <laughs> um, so they mainly lived in the Western US and Mexico in the Pleistocene. Um, there's also some examples and found in the kind of more Southern areas of um, America. They were about nine feet long, so that's 2.7 metres. That's big. That's a big sloth. This is a sloth, remember? This is a big sloth. A sloth-like thing. (laughs) And it weighed 250 kilograms, about the size of a black bear. A sloth. (laughs) So if you're looking at the fossil remains or models of this um, ancient creature, you probably think you're looking at a bear, but it is most closely related to our our sleepy friends, the modern-day three-toed sloth. And they make the de-extinction list because they still walked the earth 8,000 years ago at the dawn of human civilization, and we have DNA samples from um, hair remains. But their only surviving relatives are the little sloths that we know and love. Um, so finding a surrogate mother is currently impossible, let alone before we get into the whole niche and ecosystem thing. Um, but someday it might be possible to develop a fetus in an artificial womb. So Who knows? Maybe someday. one day. Yeah, probably not, but maybe. If anyone listening to this is near London, going into the Natural History Museum and down one of the corridors on the right, as soon as you go in through the front doors, there is a vast skeleton standing up against a tree, a fossilised tree. And that is of Megatherium, which was of the South American genus of giant ground sloth. And they are mm-hmm. they are three or four bears big. They are massive. <laughs> that is a pretty incredible animal. That's going to be hard to go up against. My one, again, recently extinct. Also, probably humans got rid of this. It's of Homotherium latidens, or the scimitar tooth cat. A cat? It's a big cat. Not saber tooth, it's a scimitar tooth, which I think is quite <laughs> cool. Much shorter teeth than, than the saber tooth cats you might be uh, thinking of. So this was populated across Eurasia. It's very, very different to any other cat alive today. It diverged from the cats 22.5 million years ago, and it exists. This species existed from about four million years to 12,000 years ago. Not only do we have samples of this, its entire genetic code has been completed. We have it in its entirety, the functional code. From this, they figured out it was. Uh, what they figured out is diurnal. They know what its circadian clock was doing when it was awake, when it hunted. They know it was an incredibly sociable animal. They knew it had a very fast firing nervous system. Its respiratory system was built to run and built 
uh, for for great stress over a great period of time and to operate under low oxygen conditions i.e when you've been running for kilometers chasing mammoths around also it could grow new blood vessels oh what which i didn't realize was a thing that it can do it's called angiogenesis and it will grow new blood vessels from old blood vessels i've actually heard of angiogenesis but in terms of um uh, cancer evolution that's incredible in order yeah to to get more blood more oxygen to specific areas Mm. which need it rapidly as well as that the circulatory system was just very powerful and mitochondrial respiration was huge as well so we know so much about this animal they are they are amazing animals the research from the university of copenhagen have succeeded in yeah again mapping the entire genome but just to put a picture in your heads they are uh, 1.1 meter at the shoulder they were hefty weighed an estimate of about 200 kilos so about the same as a lion and yeah these kind of short stubby scimitar curved teeth that came out of their mouths and they were more for slicing and chopping as opposed to stabbing like the saber-toothed type was we know that they had very strong bones very strong cardiovascular system we know yeah they just ran down their <laughs> prey and it was low population density gosh we know so much about this we know so much about this animal it's fantastic and it's just a, a genuinely quite powerful figure i wouldn't have wanted to meet one effectively while going out for a hike uh <laughs> basically <laughs> They've got nothing to eat, and they would be they would be considered a yeah, absolutely they'd be considered a pest, hunting farm animals, cattle. So are they so. candidates for de-extinction or not? Or they would eat everything. I think would be more the problem by the sounds of it. So there you go. You've got the scimitar tooth cat, and you have got the giant ground sloth. You can vote for them on Twitter or Facebook. Um, on Twitter, you can find us at Darwin Black Book. On Facebook, you can find us at Darwin's Black Book and Instagram at Darwin's Black Book also. For more information on the podcast, you can go to bit.ly forward slash Darwin's Black Book. And for more information about me, you can go to tomland.co.uk. And thank you, as always, to the British Ecological Society for supporting the development of this podcast. You can find them and join the society at britishecologicalsociety.org. Finally, you can find us on Spotify, Podchaser, google podcasts and many other podcast players and i will leave you with a quote as always and this one (laughs) this one is from jurassic park i couldn't help myself i couldn't help myself (laughs) because the history of evolution is that life escapes all barriers life breaks free life expands to new territories painfully perhaps even dangerously but life finds a way thank you so much for listening we will see you in the next episode goodbye Bye.